The story you are about to hear actually happened in a small Tennessee town in 1946. I had chosen it months ago because it offers a first-hand look at a virtually unknown piece of American history, and it provides a pathway to learning more about the country and society in which we live. The story involves an armed insurrection in Athens, Tennessee, a rebellion against a crooked small town's sheriff force and political machine that had been committing every type of crime imaginable, including murder, against the citizens for years. And despite their repeated requests for the government to investigate, they were ignored, and the situation was left in the hands of the people. Today, we, as a society, have many more outlets to turn to in order to fight tyranny, including a fair ballot box, a justice department that cares about its citizens, and a leadership that sees all issues from both sides and seeks true justice for all. If you disagree with this, turn off the TV and get involved in politics and work to put experienced, honest, level-headed, and moral men and women in positions of local and national power. In the light of today's supercharged political climate, there are some who would say we with this episode are making heroes out of those who would choose violence over the ballot box. You are left to decide who the heroes of Athens, Tennessee were. This was a case where one small town just wasn't going to take it anymore and the people stood up against tyranny. In today's America, we absolutely do not have to resort to violence in order to remove corruption. Doing so weakens us as a country, as a society, and as a people. This story ends with a letter to Athens from Eleanor Roosevelt, which expresses this thought very well in her own words. And now, the war in Athens, Tennessee. McMinn County is located on Route 11 in eastern Tennessee, between Chattanooga and Knottsville, and the town of Athens, Tennessee, is the county seat. It's largely a farming community. In the early 40s, Athens was considered the meeting place where people would gather on the courthouse lawn from surrounding areas to discuss business, politics, and crops. The population of Athens in 1946 boarded around 7,000 people. Athens, Tennessee's nickname, which you'll see on a sign on the side of the road as you enter the town, is the Friendly City. In 1946, there was one newspaper, the Daily Post-Athenian, and the streets were hard-packed dirt. Ever since the Civil War, McMinn County had been under Republican rule, but that was crumbling under the weight of Democrat power brokers, and local and regional vote manufacturing machines were springing up. Some relied solely upon, vote for me and we'll take care of you politics, and some relied upon a common variety of vote rigging, district tampering, cronyism, threats, extortion, bribery, and ballot box fraud. On August 1, 1946, the citizens of McMinn County flocked by the thousands to polling places which had been designated for them in order to cast their vote for local offices, the most important of which was county sheriff and also state senator. The town of Athens and its neighbor Etowah had been victimized by political corruption and voter intimidation for the past 10 years, ever since the wealthy Cantrell family of Etowah seized control of the county government and its law enforcement arm back in the 30s by allegedly stuffing ballot boxes and brutalizing any opposition, in time using beatings, false imprisonment, illegal taxes, job pressure, and whatever it took to keep the people in line. The turnout was especially heavy this election because a new nonpartisan political party, the GI Party, led by a number of GIs recently returned home from the war fronts, had formed, threatening the survival of Cantrell's political machine and pledging to end the lawlessness and corruption that had terrorized Athens and surrounding towns for years. The people in McMinn County had gone to the U.S. Department of Justice at least three times and had been ignored each time. This day, Election Day, they were going to have their say. But so was Paul Cantrell. His family had backed Franklin Delano Roosevelt heavily in his 1932 election, hoping that the New Deal economy would revive the local economy and help Democrats to replace Republicans in the county government. Cantrell had begun the corruption when he was elected sheriff in 1936, then steamrolled his way through the 1938 and 1940 elections, building enough power in his political machine to get elected to state senate in 1942 and 44, while making sure his chief deputy, Paul Mansfield stole the elections in McMinn County in those same years. Now, in 1946, Cantrell was back, running for sheriff once more, and he needed a show of force, but Cantrell was smart enough to keep his hands clean and let Pat Mansfield do all the dirty work. 
Weeks of intimidation and beatings hadn't stopped the G.I. party from their quest to bring down his corrupt machine. Mansfield hired 200 deputies to back him up in Athens, knowing that a superior armed force would not only intimidate the voters and Cantrell's political opponents, but would allow him to move the ballot boxes from the polling places to the courthouse, where he could make his own official count, ensuring a win for him, as had been done in the last five elections. There was only a handful of men standing in the way. They had been coming back from places like Tarawa, Salerno, Guadalcanal, Normandy, the Ardennes, Bataan, Midway, and Corregidor, where they had seen the fires of hell and all the evils that corrupt men can do. 200 armed deputies and a handful of corrupt power brokers weren't going to stand in the way of a fair election. Not this time. All hell was about to break loose in Athens, Tennessee. I'll never forget Philosophy 101 in college for two reasons. One, it was one of the few times I had the opportunity to attend the same class as my girlfriend and future wife. And two, for the reading and subsequent discussion of the book On Aggression by Conrad Lorenz. The book detailed man's innate primal aggressive nature, the fact that nature provides man with an inherent trait of aggressiveness necessary for survival of the species. How men use this tool has been the object of debate since mankind learned to communicate. Some men use it to succeed in business. Others use it to survive in harsh environments. But the power of aggression is a two-edged sword. It is used for both good and evil. There exist, and will always exist, those who use it to accumulate power and control over others for their own satisfaction and greed, regardless of who gets hurt or what laws are broken. They will use whatever tools they have available— beginning with intimidation and threats, and graduating to physical force. And when that isn't enough, they use weapons, which are usually the final arbiter. It is the way of the world. It is the way of man. No amount of pleading, no laws restricting the use of firearms or weapons of any kind, no act of contrition or show of reconciliation is going to stop this natural, aggressive urge that exists in mankind and manifests itself in cruel ways in the Hitlers, Pol Potts, Stalins, and Castros of this world. We the people, the quiet ones, the law-abiding ones, will always need to be able to stand up to evil and face it and know it for what it is. Thomas Paine once wrote, The supposed quietude of a good man allures the ruffian, while on the other hand, laws discourage and keep the plunderer in awe and preserve order in the world as property. The same balance would be preserved were all the world destitute of arms, for all would be alike, but since some will not, others dare not lay them aside. Horrid mischief would ensue were the law-abiding deprived of the use of them. It was that same horrid mischief that had taken place on a world scale when Germany and Japan, hungry for wealth, power, and domination, created weapons of war and armies capable of subjugating all of Europe and the Pacific, and declared war on the United States and its people in 1941. Between 1941 and 1945, thousands of young men left their homes and families in McMinn County, Tennessee, to fight the spread of totalitarianism in Europe and across the globe, to fight corruption and evil on a global scale, and many never returned. Those returning to Athens, Tennessee, were coming back to the same set of problems on a smaller scale, but problems nonetheless. They had heard of what was going on in McMinn County through letters and were anxious to get home and do something about it. One veteran said he thought a lot more about McMinn County than he did about the Japs. If democracy was good enough to put on the Germans and the Japs, it was good enough for McMinn County, too. During the war, two servicemen on leave were shot and killed by Cantrell thugs. The scene was set for a confrontation when McMinn County GIs were demobilized. When they arrived home, Mansfield's deputies targeted the returning GIs. One reported, a lot of boys getting discharged were coming in, and the deputies were trying to get that money off them. They were fee grabbers. There wasn't a deputy salary back then. And that was true. When Cantrell had first come in, he changed the salary system to a fee-based system, and the more arrests and shakedowns the sheriff's department could make, the more profit each man would take. It wasn't long before that system became crooked. 
The following are portions of the transcript from the interview with Bill White, World War II veteran and citizen of Athens, recorded in 2000 by Kurt Feeler and Brandy Wilson of the University of Tennessee for the Veterans Oral History Project. Bill served with the Marines in the Pacific and returned home to Athens in 1946 in the weeks prior to the election, and his words bring accuracy to the events preceding to and during that history-making day in Athens. When I got off the bus, there was four deputies standing there flipping over the service minutes. I thought that was kind of odd. If they found a man was drinking just a beer or two, they'd grab him and put him in jail. Took money off him. I asked one of these boys who were flipping through the service records, and they said, Yeah, they'll get everybody. I said, They do? He said, Yeah. And I said, Hell fire. Them boys go over there and fight a war and fight them battles, come back here, and they can't do nothing. I said, That's awful. Got a bunch of thugs in here, I reckon. That's just the way I thought, you know. A lot of boys getting discharged were getting mustering out pay. That had the deputies running around four or five at a time, grabbing up every GI they could find and trying to get that money off them. They were fee grabbers. They wasn't on a salary back then. Fees by arrests. I watched a lot of that going on. And the more I watched it, the sicker I got. And then they killed a GI or two. Shot him and killed him. And we decided that we'd get together. An election was coming up, you know. Back to our story and a little history. In 1936, the Crump Democrat machine, which ruled Tennessee, descended upon McMinn County in the person of one Paul Cantrell, the Democrat candidate for sheriff. Cantrell tied his campaign closely to the popularity of the Roosevelt administration and rode FDR's coattails to victory over his Republican opponent in what came to be known as the Vote Grab of 1936, which delivered McMinn County into the grasp of Tennessee's Crump machine. As previously mentioned, Paul Cantrell was elected sheriff in the 1936, 38, and 1940 elections and was elected to the state Senate in 1942 and 1944, while his former deputy, Pat Mansfield, a transplanted Georgian, was elected sheriff. A state law enacted in 1941 had reduced local political opposition by reducing the number of voting precincts from 23 to 12 and reducing the number of justices of the peace from 14 to 7, including four Cantrell men. Citizens of McMinn County had long been concerned about political corruption and possible election fraud. The U.S. Department of Justice had received notice of allegations of electoral fraud in 1940, 1942, and 1944, but had not taken action. The ability to control the vote was essential to the control of McMinn County. Manipulation of the poll tax and the counting of the votes were the primary methods, but it was not uncommon for the dead to vote in McMinn County. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. The Cantrell machine reaped much in corruption through allowing and controlling gambling and bootlegging. With most of the young men away at the war, the deputies, many of them ex-convicts, were enforcers for the machine and ran roughshod over the citizens of the county. In the August 1946 election, Paul Cantrell was running against Knox Henry for sheriff, while Pat Mansfield, Cantrell's man and sheriff in Athens, was making a run for the state senate seat in an attempt to spread the graft amongst themselves. Knox Henry was a veteran of the North African campaign and well-respected by the returning G.I.s and the citizens of Athens. Paul Mansfield was a big, jovial, sometime engineer for the Louisville and Nashville Railroad who had done very nicely as sheriff, managing to collect over $100,000 in personal income from using his badge for four years to shake down tourists and returning military vets on phony charges. McMinn County had around 3,000 returning military veterans, constituting almost 10% of the county's population. Some of the returning veterans resolved to challenge Cantrell's political control by fielding their own nonpartisan candidates and working for a fraud-free election. A meeting was called in May. 
veteran ID was required for admission, a nonpartisan state of candidates was selected. Bill White's interview continues. We decided to form a GI ticket in the next election and kicked them out. Well, we formed a ticket and got candidates to run for every office in McMinn County. And we had meetings, and they put up Jim Buttram, head of the GI ticket. And they put lawyer Dugan as a publicity agent and a lawyer that got a ticket. And they started off that way. And they started putting up signs and things. Those deputies went out and beat up them GIs putting up signs and tearing them down. They had another meeting, and they thought about what the deputies were doing. And I got up and said, listen, you think they're going to let you win this election? Those people have been taking those elections for years with a bunch of armed thugs. If you never got the guts enough to stand up and fight fire with fire, you ain't going to win. They said, no, nah, we don't want to do that. I said, you better do it or you're wasting your time. And Jim Buttram got up and said, well, Bill, I'll recommend you to be the GI leader, organized to keep them from taking the election. And I said, that suits me. And they voted me in as the GI leader to organize a fighting bunch to keep them from beating up GIs and keep them from taking the election. That was right down my alley. I like that. So I got out and started organizing with a bunch of GIs. Well, spirits, I learned that you get the poor boys out of poor families and the ones that was frontline warriors that's done fighting and didn't care to bust a cap on you. I learned to do that. So that's what I picked. I had 30 men and I took what mustering out pay I got and bought pistols. And some of them had pistols. I had 30 men organized. We continue with our story. When the polls opened in Athens at 9 a.m. on Election Day, August 1, 1946, the turnout was heavy. The first flare-up occurred at 10 a.m. when Walter Ellis, who had been designated as the G.I. election judge to ensure fairness, was arrested and hauled off to the county jail. He was replaced at that precinct by Fred West, a bartender and part-time deputy for Sheriff Pat Mansfield. The fix was in. Ellis was held incommunicado in the county jail, and Sheriff Mansfield's men flatly denied to permit any reporters or Buttram to see him. Magistrate Herman Moses, when asked what charges had been placed, declared that Ellis had attempted to perpetrate a fraud by marking ballots at Precinct 1 at the courthouse. Bertram was then denied the opportunity to make bond for Ellis. Sirens had been wailing all morning, things were tense, and police cruisers were seen speeding toward the jail. G.I.s began gathering on Washington Street outside L.L. Schaefer's jewelry store, which was serving as an office for their campaign manager, Jim Buttram. They had been pounding on the door repeatedly, and finally Buttram opened it. He was tense, nervous. He had just gotten the results back from two urgent telegrams he had sent the week previous, one addressed to Governor Jim McCord in Nashville and the other to Attorney General Tom Clark in Washington, D.C. Both letters had requested assistance to ensure a fair election. Both had been ignored. Between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m., the corridor of the courthouse was crowded with voters, both men and women. Their prisoner, Ellis, had been removed so he couldn't be heard, and about 20 deputies, hands on pistols and blackjacks ready, pushed through the crowd to the voting precinct. They were reinforced by several more armed guards, a few of them city policemen and a state highway patrolman who placed themselves on the steps where they could watch for trouble. One lone G.I. who had been watching the guarded vote counting before it was moved to the county jail said, Over there we had something to fight back with. Another remarked, We just aren't well organized and we haven't got guns. We haven't got a chance with this Gestapo. Still another remark to the press, This is causing a lot of bitterness and a lot of it will come later today. Bill White had put his group together and they were eager for action, so eager that they were making the G.I. party heads nervous. White's interview continues. Well, when the election come off, Pat Mansfield had 200 deputies armed and paying them $50 a day to help him. He was going to take that election. Deputies started beating up the GIs we had as poll watchers. If they objected to anything they was doing, beating them up and putting them in jail. We had a GI headquarters down there, and I come in down there at about 8.30, and Jim Buttram was in there, the head of the GI ticket, you know, the campaign manager. And I had those men with me. They already had him scared to death. He locked the door on me, and I was hollering through the door at him, and he said, 
My God, you're going to get us all killed. Wham! I just kicked the door in, took them on in there. I said, we might do it, but what you can do, Jim, if you don't like what we're doing, you can just leave out of here. Well, that's what Jim Bertram done. He left out of there. And in the meantime, we got together. All those men that we had running for office joined him, and they all left, and just left me and my gang there. Well, that was all right with me. They didn't want to do no fighting. No way. They wasn't warriors. And they had been in the military, but they wasn't front-line warriors. But I had them. I said, boys, get out. Get in touch with every G.I. you can now and get them back here. We're going to organize big. So they took off, and every G.I. they could find in McMinn County, they got the word to. And the first thing you know, there was about 200 of them there. And they was milling around out there, and Pat Mansfield sent some deputies down there to see what we was doing. Well, they come down where we was, but they didn't go back. We grabbed them and captured them and put them in an old tire place over there and made prisoners out of them. And we got seven of them down there who were headed there. Beat up some of them, because naturally that went with it. We whooped around on them a little bit and disarmed them, just to give us that many more guns. Back to our story, and this is where it gets interesting. And what I mean is how we, meaning you and I, perceive the lawlessness that you are starting to see on both sides. We're used to our orderly, protected lives. We don't have to fight armed corruption. We have the law to do that for us. So we look at the past, at White's group of men who saw this as a fight against tyranny, and we want to judge them for their actions. It just isn't the clean, justified actions you expect to see from the guys wearing the white hats. Well, when you really start studying history, the revolution, the wars, any kind of fight to resist evil, there are no white hats. There's no clear right and wrong. There's no tailor-made ending like the kind we get at the end of a one-hour crime drama on TV. You fight aggression with aggression and hope that the guys who fight for something good and decent are still standing when it's over. It's never pretty. It's not sanctified. It's war, and it's ugly. Thomas Jefferson once wrote, The tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. And now it was 1946, and Athens, Tennessee was one of those times. Back to Bill White's interview. And so, Otto Bull Kennedy was the chairman of the Republican Party. He was helping them put mail ballots out. He came in. We were using his place over there. He had the tire place to put our prisoners. He said, what are you going to do with all these men? I said, I don't know, Otto. We might just kill them. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. No, I'm not having anything else to do with this. Me and my brother and son-in-law is leaving here. I said, don't leave. You might cause some of these GIs to leave off. Otto wasn't a GI, you know. He was just giving moral support. The Republicans was. He wasn't giving no real support, no fighting or nothing. He didn't want to do that. And he said, Bull, JP, J.B. Adams, let's get out of here. We don't want to have no part of this. So he left and went across the street to the car. They had their wives over there in their cars. I walked over there and said, Hell, don't leave right now. We ain't even got started yet. We're leaving here. So they took off and went home. Got home, they pushed all the furniture up against the door and everything. At this point, White laughed. Well, anyway, I got some boys and we took them deputies out way back, out in the country. And whooped them good, you know. With hickories and an old club about the size of your thumb. And you know, give them a good whooping. Three of them was out of Georgia. And they thought we were going to kill them. They begged us not to kill them and all that stuff. But we didn't. Thought about it, but we didn't. Ha! So we come on back. Then they shot a black man down there. Our story continues. At 2.45 p.m., a black farmer named Tom Gillespie entered the Athens Water Company building, which was serving as the 11th precinct, to vote. One of Cantrell's, or Pat Mansfield's men, depending on how you want to look at it, had positioned himself behind Gillespie to observe how he was going to vote. And when the deputy had determined that Gillespie was voting for the G.I. party, he pulled Gillespie away from the ballot box and told him, You'll have to get out of here. You're voting at the wrong precinct. Gillespie turned to Deputy Windy Wise and said, I've always voted here before. Wise couldn't handle having a black man talking back to him, and placing brass knuckles on his hand, slugged Gillespie in the face hard. Gillespie then ran for the door, knowing what any resistance would cost him. And as he reached the door, Wise drew his revolver and shot him in the back. Inside the room, the gold-starred deputies turned their attention on the men and women who were standing wide-eyed witnessing the event. 
election judge and deputy sheriff Carl Neal, pistol on hip, ordered Mrs. H.A. Vestal and five other women to leave the polling place. Get out, said Neal. The women, amazingly, considering the time, place, and circumstances, stood their ground. We have a right to watch you count the ballots, one of them said. Go on, get out of here, shouted Neal, and the women finally gave ground and left, protesting. But that wasn't enough. There were four G.I.s in the room. Mrs. Vestal's son James, Charles Scott Jr., Charlie Hyde, and J.P. Cartwright. But the Cantrell machine had six men in the room, all wearing guns. Neil ordered Cartwright and Hyde to go up front and sit down. They protested that they couldn't see the count from there. You don't have to see us to count them, said one of the thugs. Cartwright said he wouldn't stay if he couldn't witness the count, and he and Hyde left, which left Vestal and Scott as the only G.I. watchers for Precinct 11. When Cartwright and Hyde emerged, a roar of anger went up from hundreds of citizens now gathered across the street. The eight or nine deputies in front of the waterworks fingered their revolvers nervously. Charles Scott Sr. sent word into his son to come out. We don't want you boys in there with those gangsters. Vestal and Scott, inside, asked to leave, but now the sheriff's men ordered them to sit down. A few minutes later, they asked again, at which point the deputies barricaded them behind a counter and locked the door. Vestal later told a reporter, We jumped on the counter, climbed over it, and tried to get out. The door was locked. Charlie hit it with his shoulder. The deputies were right at us and trying to slug us using brass knuckles, and then with guns. Charlie broke the glass, and we stumbled through, with Charlie taking cuts around his shoulder. The door was plate glass set in a wood frame. Now the two were in the street, in front of over a thousand people who had gathered. Vestal, who had been a first lieutenant in the Army Engineer Corps and twice wounded in the Pacific, scrambled to his feet, blood dripping from a gash in his left hand. Scott was also rising to his feet. Through the broken glass, immediately behind them, climbed Deputy Sheriff Windy Wise, a shiny thirty-eight revolver held in front of him. He shouted something which was lost in the collective moan that went through the crowd. Women screamed, and one shouted, Oh, God, here it comes! From a long line of ex-soldiers across the street came cries of, Let's go get them! Vestal and Scott put their hands up in the air, most likely in response to an order from Wise, and walked, not toward Wise, but toward the throng of people lining the street. Wise leveled his revolver at their backs, and while doing so, was joined by another deputy named George Sperling, who was also aiming his pistol at the retreating boys, and the G.I.s in the crowd who were cheering Vestal and Scott on. Witnesses later swore that Sperling was about to fire just as the third deputy grabbed his arm and gave him half a dozen swift slaps in the ribs as a signal not to shoot. The G.I.s watching shouted out a challenge to the deputies. Throw down your guns now and come over here and we'll fight you man to man. At this point, the deputies ducked back into the waterworks building. Minutes later, Chief Deputy Bo Dunn pulled up in front of the building, escorted by a dozen armed deputies, went inside and came out carrying the ballot box to his car. At 3.55 p.m., the first precinct, Dixie Cafe, which was next to the county jail, was closed. The door was locked, and Mansfield's men lifted an automobile to the sidewalk and placed it directly in front of the door. Two other cars were placed in the narrow alley to block access to the area of the voting place, and the sheriff's deputies, hands on their pistols, stood in place to guard against anyone who might want to enter to make a legal count We return to Bill White's interview where he has just been asked about the man who was shot at the waterworks. That was Gillespie. And they said they was going to take him to the hospital. They put him in the car. Didn't none of us have any cars. We borrowed a car and an old truck to take them deputies out from a hardware store down there. He let us have his car and truck. Big hardware store there on the corner. So they took him over by the jail and told the sheriff they'd shot a black man. And they told him to take him to the hospital. They took him on over to the hospital, old man Gillespie, and so they come out there with their guns up. Those deputies hollered and said, You damn G.I.s! They wanted to cuss us. I was standing there listening at them. I said, Yeah, you won't be cussing us long. So I got them together down there again. The G.I.s. I said, Listen, boys, they got all kinds of guns out there in that armory. I said, Edsel, Edsel Underwood, he's kind of playing my lieutenant, you know. I said, Take five or six of these men out there and break in that armory and get them guns. And I said, All right, here's the old man that's head of that armory. We'll see if he's got the keys. 
I got on one side of him, and Etzel got on the other, and I said, Where's the damn keys to this armory out there? He said, You're playing with the government now. I said, Where's the keys? In my left pocket. I ain't got the keys to that ammunition and them guns in there now. Well, we got the keys to the front door off from him. At that point, White laughed. And what was his name? His name was... Oh, I can't think of his name right now. But anyway, he was a major out there. Anyway, he gave us the keys to the front door and went out there, accidentally opened the front, and then busted in the rest of it and got 60 .30-06 rifles, Enfields, and two sub-Thompson machine guns, and all the ammunition we could carry. And they brought them back down there to the GI headquarters in the big two-ton truck we had all that stuff in. And he said, Bill, here's all that stuff. What do you want to do with it? I said, I'm going to pass them rifles to these GIs here. I got up in the truck. I passed out all 60 of them and a bandolier of ammunition apiece and still had some ammunition left over. We got the word then that they was taking ballot boxes out of them precincts and they was taking them into the jail. I said, I said, boy, they doing something. I'm glad they done that. Now all we got to do is whip on the jail. And they had two or three precincts they took up there to that jail. That was their bad mistake. We continue our story. At about 2.30 p.m., Bill White, in the process of mustering GIs to provide a show of force, walked into SNK Tire Station, where a group of them were gathered. He was fired up. You call yourselves GIs? He asked. You go over there and fight for three, four years, you come back and let a bunch of draft dodgers who stayed here where it was safe, and you were making it safe for them, push you around? If you people don't stop this, this is the time and the place. You people wouldn't make a pimple on a fighting G.I.'s ass. Now get your guns. At around 3 p.m. at Dixie's Cafe, which was controlled by Marcus Wilburn, one of Cantrell and Mansfield's henchmen, was busy allowing people whose name was not on the voting list to vote, letting minors vote, and handing cash to adult voters who could agree to vote for the Democrat ticket. All this under the watch of Bob Harrell and Leslie Dooley, the G.I. poll watchers. Finally, at 3.45, Harrell's patience gave out, and he grabbed Wilburn's wrist. Wilburn then slapped him in the head with his blackjack and kicked him in the face as he fell to the floor. Then Wilburn closed the precinct. At 6.35 p.m., the sheriff's men, assisted by state highway patrolmen and city policemen, removed the automobile from in front of Dixie's Cafe and carried the ballot box to the McMinn County Jail. As the sheriff's men carried the ballot box across the jailhouse lawn, they were preceded by two men carrying handguns and four more equipped with 10- and 12-gauge shotguns and high-powered rifles. By 7.30 p.m., the mass of fighting men of Athens, enraged by the events of the day, Fearing the arrival of the National Guard that Cantrell had called in to protect himself, and realizing that they needed to act before a false count was announced and the guard showed up, were approaching the jail. A shotgun blast came from an open window on the third floor of the brick building, and two men in the street fell wounded by buckshot. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Bill White's story continues. I got those 60 men. I said, boys, let's go. And I led them around up towards the college and split them up there and had one take, Bucklanders take half of them, or almost half of them, through the alley there to meet us up there on that bank up above the jail, behind the post office. I took the rest of them around behind the college and around by the post office. And Buck got his men up there and lined them up there on the bank overlooking the jail. And I said, boys, I'm going to tell them to bring the ballot boxes out of there. And if they don't, we're going to open up on them. 
I hollered in there. I said, you damn thieve grabbers, bring down them damn ballot boxes. That's just what I said. He didn't make a move down there, and finally one of them said, by God, I heard a bolt click. Down there, one of them grabbers did, you know. They started scattering around, and I had a pistol in my belt with a shotgun, and I pulled the pistol out and started firing down there at them. And well, when I did that, all that whole line up there started firing down there in there. A lot of them got in the jail, some of them didn't, and some of them got shot laying outside, and the battle started. They began to shoot out of the jailhouse at us, and every time they'd shoot, we'd open up a volley of fire. You couldn't believe how them 60 men with them 30-06 rifles, and man, that scared them people to death down there in that jail, a lot of them. And the battle went on, raged on, and they was trying to slip out. But before, I'd sent six men down there in the corner to open fire in the courthouse to scare those deputies down there, a lot of deputies down there, to keep them from joining the deputies up at the jailhouse. And they sat down there and fired several rounds through the courthouse, held them all down at bay down there. Then I had sent some scouts behind the jail to see what they were doing, slipping anyone in the jail. Well, one scout come back and told me if some of them were coming out of the jail and running off. I said, that's good. Don't fire on them if they're running, if they're not armed. Let them go. And he said, okay, and then went back around there, and they didn't fire on them. They just let them go. But they was throwing their arms down, leaving that jail behind. And the firing kept on, and about every hour I asked if they were about ready to give up, and they wouldn't say nothing. So I had some boys go out and get some dynamite out of the old, well, the county had a place out there where they kept dynamite. I knew where it was and said, go out there and get a case of dynamite. They went out there and got a case of dynamite. Some of the G.I.s went down and got some gasoline and oil mix and made Molotov cocktails out of it. They was throwing Molotov cocktails and they was hitting on top of them cars and burning them, first one place and then the other, and they couldn't get them all the way down there. They were big old bottles, you know. They couldn't throw them that far. Anyway, they were sitting out there next to them cars, and then we got to make dynamite, uh, bombs. We'd put two or three sticks of dynamite together and tape it together and put a cap in there and a fuse and we'd rear back and throw them. Well, we couldn't get them all the way to the jail, but we got them out to them cars. They'd blow them cars up in the air and turn them over and laid them back on the top. Several cars down there were blowing up. We continue with our story. At 10 p.m. inside the jail, Sheriff Pat Mansfield was handed the phone, and it was a reporter for the Chattanooga Daily Times. I can't talk to you right now. There's mob violence at the county jail right now. Things are too hot here. I haven't got time to talk to you. He hung up the phone. An hour later, as bullets shattered everything above waist level and higher, depending on the floor in the building, Mansfield and his deputies shouted a warning to the men outside. Mansfield was holding three GI hostages, all election judges, Felix Herod, Tom Dooley, and Walter Ellis. If you don't back off, we'll shoot these men, Mansfield threatened. There were 75 deputies inside the jail, all involved in the firefight. Lead was pouring into every opening in the jail. The deputies were running out of ammo, while the supply from outside seemed to have no end. Some on the outside were firing from the street. Others were positioned on top of the buildings facing the jail. The crowd was huge, and even included younger boys using .22s and BB guns. The dynamited cars were burning. The air was filled with smoke and cordite. It was a wild melee. By 2 a.m., the phone lines to the jail had been cut. Mansfield shouted out another threat to kill the hostages. The G.I.s had their own response. The deputies would come out now with their hands up and their lives would be spared. The shooting continued. At 2.30 a.m., an ambulance pulled up to the north side of the jail. Assuming it was for the evacuation of the wounded, the veterans let it pass. Two men jumped in, but instead of heading toward the hospital, it sped north out of town. It was carrying Paul Cantrell and Pat Mansfield. You return to Bill White's account. We're going to have to get some charges up there on that jail, I said. Make a couple charges there. We'll go down there and we'll play some charges. So I made up a couple charges and I crawled up and put a charge on the jailhouse porch. Crawled back behind the building there and it went off and blew the porch up. I didn't get no answer out of them. It was getting long. We'd been fighting there, you know, for about four or five hours. So I went up and laid it right against the jail. It was a bigger one than the one I put on earlier. When it went off, it jarred that jail. Whew! Like that. First thing I know, here come a bunch of white flags out the door. At that point, White laughed. They'd given up. 
There was about 60 of them in there. They come out there with pistols hanging on their fingers and everything else. And we come off the bank up there, and we take our pistols off their fingers and throw them out there. We beat up some of them, you know. The one that shot the black, you know, we pitched him out there, and they like to kill him. They beat him almost to death. Then they cut one throat out there in the crowd and beat up several of them, you know. Some of them were beaten up pretty bad. Marched them down round the courthouse, marched them back, and put them in jail. About 20 were beaten up pretty bad, and they put them in the hospital. The one they'd cut the throat, they took him to the hospital. And they'd picked up a bunch of men whose arms were shot off, legs shot off, shot through the belly. You know, first one thing. There were several of them hurt pretty bad. But they all lived, you know. It was a miracle. We wasn't trying to save their lives. They was just lucky. We continue our story. When Windy Wise came out, several in the crowd surged forward and bawled and kicked him senseless before he could be picked up and then carried back inside to a cell. The deputies' automobiles outside were smashed and burned. Marcus Wilburn, one of Mansfield's deputies, had his throat slashed. Biscuit Ferris, Cantrell's prison superintendent, had his jaw shattered by a bullet. And many of the deputies who had been inside the building suffered bullet wounds and cuts from flying glass. But miraculously, there were no deaths. By 7.05 a.m. the next morning, the ballots were counted. The recovered ballots certified the election of the five GI nonpartisan league candidates. Among the reforms instituted later was a change in the method of payment and a $5,000 salary cap for officials. In the initial momentum of victory, gambling houses in collusion with the Cantrell regime were raided and their operations demolished. Deputies of the prior administration resigned and were replaced. The ballots, when tallied, proved a landslide for the GI nonpartisan league. Scores of veterans were present when Speaker of the Tennessee House of Representatives and Secretary of the McMinn County Election Commissioners, George Woods, was marched into the county courthouse under the guard of the ex-GIs. Speaker Woods had fled after the gunfight. League member Knox Henry received 2,175 votes against 1,270 for Sheriff Cantrell. The league also won the other races. It was 2,194 to 1,270 for Frank Carmichael as trustee. George Painter won the county clerk race, 2,175 to 1,198. The county clerk broke 2,165 to 1,197 for Charles Pickett. In early September, the fall of the county political machine was followed by the resignation of Athens Mayor Paul Walker and the town's four aldermen. The resignations met with popular approval. The resignations came after a nighttime shotgun blast through the front of Alderman Hugh Riggs' home. Mayor Walker had previously refused a demand to resign made immediately after the gunfight by the McMinn County American Legion and VFW Post. Only one man was sentenced for his actions, Deputy Windy Wise, who pulled down one to three years for shooting Gillespie in the back. Lucky for Wise, Gillespie survived. Paul Cantrell ran to Chattanooga, seeking asylum with his political pals until the storm died down, then returning to neighboring Etowah to start up a car dealership years afterward. Pat Mansfield was running and ran all the way back to Georgia, but later returned for a few days to resign his seat on the commission after telling Otto Kennedy his story. Kennedy had remained neutral in the Athens War. He told Kennedy he was going back to railroading in Georgia. The new sheriff, Knox Henry, served two full terms as sheriff of McMinn County. The Battle of Athens was followed by movements of veterans in other Tennessee counties, promoting a statewide coalition against corrupt political machines in the upcoming November elections. An attempt to form a nonpartisan GI political league was countered by Governor Jim McCord, who directed the Young Democrats Clubs of Tennessee to recruit ex-GIs. There were strenuous efforts by the Crump Organization, based in Shelby County, to counter the nascent GI organization. A convention was held in Alamo, Tennessee, with the intention of establishing a new national party for the GIs. But the convention was dissuaded by General Evans Carlson, U.S. Marine Corps, who argued that the GIs should work through the existing political parties. Today, the war in Athens stands as an example of the continued need for the Second Amendment, which allows our citizens to own and carry firearms lawfully. This provides them with the option to use armed force to support the rule of law, when it is clearly violated, and when honest citizens' lives are clearly being controlled and threatened. A lot has changed since Athens. Political machines still exist, but they rely much more upon buying votes from citizens than forcing those votes to the point of a gun. 
Our veterans are free to support the party they favor, but they are still feared and watched closely by some groups within the U.S. government that have placed them on homegrown terrorist lists. The Second Amendment is a thorn in the side to many who wish to outlaw all guns in the U.S., their thinking being that without guns, there will be less killings and violence. This topic has been a hot button in the United States politics and at dinner tables for years. Stay tuned for the letter that Eleanor Roosevelt, the nation's first lady, wrote regarding the war in Athens. McMinn, A Warning, by Eleanor Roosevelt. After any war, the use of force throughout the world is almost taken for granted. Men involved in the war have been trained to use force, and they have discovered that, when you want something, you can take it. The return to peacetime methods governed by law and persuasion is usually difficult. We in the USA, who have long boasted that, in our political life, freedom and the use of the secret ballot made it possible for us to register the will of the people without the use of force, have had a rude awakening as we read of the conditions in McMinn County, Tennessee, which brought about the use of force in the recent primary. If a political machine does not allow the people free expression, then freedom-loving people lose their faith in the machinery under which their government functions. In this particular case, a group of young veterans organized to oust a local machine and elect their own slate in the primary. We may deplore the use of force, but we must also recognize the lesson which this incident points for us all. When the majority of the people know what they want, they will obtain it. Any local, state, or national government, or any political machine in order to live, must give the people assurance that they can express their will freely and that their votes will be counted. The most powerful machine cannot exist without the support of the people. Political bosses and the political machinery can be good, but the minute they cease to express the will of the people, their days are numbered. This is a lesson which wise political leaders learn young, and you can be pretty sure that, when a boss stays in power, he gives the majority of the people what they think they want. If he is bad and indulges in practices which are dishonest, or if he acts for his own interests alone, the people are unwilling to condone these practices. When the people decide that conditions in their town, county, state, or country must change, they will change them. If the leadership has been wise, they will be able to do it peacefully through a secret ballot which is honestly counted. But if the leader has become inflated and too sure of his own importance, he may bring about the kind of action which was taken in Tennessee. If we want to continue to be a mature people who, at home and abroad, settle our difficulties peacefully and not through the use of force, then we will take to heart this lesson and we will jealously guard our rights. What goes on before an election, the threats or persuasion by political leaders, may be bad, but it cannot prevent the people from really registering their will if they wish to. The decisive action which has just occurred in our midst is a warning, and one which we cannot afford to overlook. Signed, Eleanor Roosevelt, New York, 1946. And we'll close with this article by John Peck, writing for the Daily Post-Athenian in 1946. Lincoln said it, and it applies now as then, by John Peck. The government, with its institutions, belongs to the people who inhabit it. Whenever they shall grow weary of the existing government, they can exercise their constitutional right of amending it. Abraham Lincoln. What Lincoln meant was just this. The government of any group of people is in the hands of the people, and they must carry on an active part in maintaining their government unless they want to abide by the rule of a few unscrupulous persons who find ways and means of getting the reins of power in governmental offices. If the people as a whole do not maintain a vigilant watch over matters of government, a few people, grasping for power and domination, find it easy to undermine all the principles of democracy. It has been said that the situation now prevailing here in McMinn County puts its citizens in the best position of any county in the state, and possibly in the nation, as to the control and manipulation of its government. We are in just that position if the people as a whole will attend the countywide mass meetings tomorrow night and participate in the election of the representatives of their respective communities who will serve on the board of directors of the Good Government League of McMinn County. The people who are elected must have the knowledge that they have the backing of all the people in their community when they go to the various meetings of the board of directors and vote on the matters of government that come before that body. The choice is in your hands. 1. Take an active part in your government, as it is your duty and privilege as a citizen. Or 2. 
The next time you find that your government has fallen into the hands of unscrupulous politicians, just say, it is my own fault. I had a chance to do something about it. I did nothing. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We hope that this little-known story will provide food for thought and a lively discussion. 1001 Heroes is listened to now in over 100 countries and can be found at all podcatcher sites like iTunes, Stitcher.com, and Podbay.fm, where you will have the option to subscribe, which is free. When you subscribe, our show goes on your favorites list, and that will notify you every time we launch a new episode. You can also visit our website at 1001storiespodcast.com or chime in at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes, A-G-R-O-E-S. And check out our newest show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, at iTunes and others now. And at our website, you'll find it in the upper right. Thanks very much for listening. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.